Adventures cast is part of the Fire and Water Network. The Don Juan Syndrome in Modern Culture. An analysis of satyrizes. Oh man, she did it. She even made my sex life boring. And not for the first time. Welcome back to Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and joining me for the fourth season episode, Don Juan is Hell, is the Don Juan of the Two True Freaks Podcasting Network. You know him <laughs> as the host of Back to the Bins. Please welcome Mr. Paul Spataro. How's it going, Paul? It's going good, Ryan. Thanks for having me on again. I always enjoy doing this. You, you know, you already know my cheers background and how much i enjoy that show and you know it, it feels like you you get me to you know I, there's been a few episodes where i've specifically said oh i love this episode can i come on uh but otherwise when when you just kind of reach out to me randomly it feels exactly that it feels random and it feels like it's it gets me to focus on an episode that i might have otherwise just kind of swept under the carpet which is kind of what i feel about today's yeah i i <laughs> You know, it, it's not one that I, I had really given a lot of thought before, uh, but now you know you you mentioned it, and I said, okay, let me watch this and give it a little bit more thought. And you know, it's it's funny how you know when you just watch these shows and you're just sitting back and relaxing, you know, that's one thing, but when you start focusing on it, all of a sudden you're saying, oh, you know what? I never thought of this or that that's going on here. And uh, like I said, I, I always appreciate the opportunity because it's pretty cool. Well, that's my secret. That's why I bring you back every season is because I know we're going to have a good conversation, even if the episode might not lend itself to a lot of discussion. But um, I think there is at least one kernel of meat in this one that we can kind of do some uh, psychoanalyzing of some characters in this one. Uh, yeah, we're, we're talking about season four, episode 11, Don Juan is Hell. This episode is written by Fief Sutton, and I'll come back to that name. Directed by Jim Burroughs, the original air date was Thursday, December 12th, 1985. Diane struggles to come up with a theme for a paper in her human sexuality course, so Sam encourages her to use him as a case study. Her professor is blown away by her paper, though a little suspicious that her case study on Don Juanism is a little too textbook perfect until he actually meets Sam in person. Professor Greenspan, and I don't know why it's Greenspan and not Greenspan, but anyway. Professor Could Greenspan, that just be to be more pretentious? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Has that little sound, yeah. Professor Greenspan tells Diane the New England Journal of Psychology would publish her paper if she could cite one of Sam's female conquests in the paper. Diane hesitates for fear of outing her own susceptibility to Sam's charms for all of academia to read. Later, Diane's classmates come to cheers to see Sam, who hijacks the lecture for what he sees as a chance to instruct the students on how to score with the babes. Diane pulls Sam into the office where she reveals that within the context of her paper, Sam's womanizing is not a heroic act of conquest, but the pathetic arrested development of a man-child incapable of respecting women and finding love. 
In order to prove Diane wrong, Sam asks her to sit on his lap to show that he can be physically and emotionally close without sex overwhelming him. In no time at all, their hormones overcome them both, and Diane agrees to change her thesis rather than force Sam to confront her assessment. Meanwhile, Carla and Woody face off in a sports trivia contest. Alrighty, um, just before before I go, I wanted to mention that uh, this is the first episode written by Fief Sutton, and Fief is short for Christopher, it's a nickname that he got when he was a kid. Uh, Fief Sutton would go on to write 23 episodes, but he was also one of the show's main producers for seasons 7 through 10. Alright, Paul, what did you think about this episode? I kind of, you know, I kind of gave you a clue on that in the beginning. It was one that I, you know, because I had... You had gotten me binging this show again, and I kind of blew past you like you're standing still because I can, you know, I'm watching three, four a day, and this was was far in my rearview mirror. And I can't say it really stood out to me so much until you made me think about it more. And what's jumping out at me now, and I wanted to kind of hit on it before I forget, and I'll get a little bit more deeply into this episode, is. It, in my mind, it's now become a part one of a two-part episode. I feel like we had a sequel to this episode in season eight, okay. in the episode Severe Crane Damage, when Lilith wrote the book, what is it, Good Girls, Bad Boys? Yes. <laughs> yes. And and Sam is kind of you know flaunting himself as being the bad boy in that. And that's what kind of gave it its subtext to me, is that Sam is... He, he was a professional baseball player, so it's not that he hasn't accomplished anything in his life. Just being a professional baseball player means you have to have been an exceptional athlete in your life. But I think that the thing he's most proud of is his prowess with the ladies. And he has a tough time conceiving of the fact that that makes him more shallow. And Diane, in pointing out how shallow he is, has to reflect on how shallow she is to have been with him. Right. And so, like I said, it's an episode that I just kind of sloughed past without really thinking about it. But as you think about it, it really does create a little bit more of a three-dimensional character here for both of them. That's fascinating and funny because I had the same thought, but I thought of a different later episode. I, I forgot about the, the Good Girls, Bad Boys book, which, it, oh, God, is one of, I, I think all in all, season eight might be my favorite total season. So uh, I, I, I should have thought of that episode because that one was great. Um, but one of the very last episodes, maybe the penultimate episode or one of the very last ones in season 11, finally forces Sam to confront uh, his, his womanizing as an addiction, as a sexual compulsive disorder. And in that, he kind of looks at it. And, and you, when I, I remember that and when I was thinking the way si- Diane is describing him and what his life might ultimately be as when she says in her description of Trevor, uh, the case study that she says, um, <laughs> that, you know, as, as he ages and his physical appearance, you know, like, like ceases to be like, you know, something that he can lean on to get these women, he might not have anything and he's just destined to be kind of alone, um, because he won't have forged any meaningful attachments and bonds with women that aren't just based on sex and these meaningless things. Um, and that is something that he is going to have to confront seven seasons from now at this point. Uh, so I but the show that. does end with him in, you know, he's not in a relationship and he's still in a comfortable place. Like It's almost like he found his place is in this bar mm-hmm. with these people who are his surrogate family. And yeah. so he does have a meaningful relationship in that context. 
but he never is able to forge a meaningful sexual relationship. You know, a, a sexual relationship that's based more on physical or on, on something more than physical. Right. Uh, right. And, and that is, I mean, that is the reality of his character. Right. Right. The one thing that this, this episode does kind of shortchange, possibly one of the people he is closest to in the world is a female in Carla without a sexual relationship. Yeah, they 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 tend to gloss over that and kind of ignore that. And I think it's the shortcut, the sort of simple dismissive no prize is that well, Carla's just one of the guys in her in Sam's eyes. You know, she's not a woman. She's not like an available thing. And they they tease at it occasionally, like they've you know, I mean, they have kissed, they have had those moments in episodes before, but. It's more of this um, – he sees her more of a, as a, a sisterly type of character or, or the friend, and I think she loves him so much that she knows that you know to, to get involved with him would be the ruin of their friendship and the ruin of her relationship with him. And she even kind of hero-worships him as much as she loves you know Boston sports and, and things like that. She, she probably revered him before she met him. As the owner oh, of the she, bar, she definitely has him on a pedestal. There's yeah. no question. Yeah. So, but but there is a non-sexual relationship there, that, which you know, I, I think they've hinted at it at times where she was attracted to him, like you say, but she knows that that would be the ruination of their friendship, which she values more than her attraction to him. Right. Right. But uh, and the other thing, uh, just to touch on really quickly, is you, you, I, I, unless I missed it, you left out the subplot about. Uh, Cliff and his uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> his, his vegetables that resemble things. Now, I don't think anything can top the potato that looked like Richard Nixon. Which I love that they call back to that. They actually reference that in this one. But what was it? Uh, was it a squash this yeah. time? Uh, yeah, this that, episode, yes. That was, a, was a map of the Hawaiian Islands. <laughs> yeah, the, squash, the, the bumps and the bruise on the squash resemble an exact map of the Hawaiian Islands. And they're like, and they can't believe it. And I love the fact that he concedes. He's like, yeah, the potato that looks like Nixon. That was a little bit crazy, even for me. But he tries <laughs> to get he tries to get them in on this. And I love Norm's reaction. Is like, Cliff, don't make me look at it. <laughs> He's just, yeah. And so I, I great both subplots in this episode. It, it's funny because mm-hmm. the main plot really did have some meat to it, mm-hmm. but the two subplots had more humor. Right, right. They they kind of carried the jokes of the show to a large extent. I mean, there are some funny things. I think the funniest thing in the main plot is just Sam's attitude towards the whole thing. Right. You know, Woody with the trivia and and uh, Cliff with his his Hawaiian Island. Recreation; those those things had me laughing out loud. Yeah, he shows the squash to Norm. He's like, "This is one of nature's fascinating little mutations." And Carla's <laughs> like, "It's resting in the hand of one of its bigger one- mutations." <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, as as we see, sort of like um, as you mentioned, like for the teaser, they start off with you know Carla no is like she's not even trying; she's like laying sprawl across like three bar stools as Norm and one of the the tertiary characters, Tim, are like quizzing her from the sports trivia book and she knows everything. She's got this memory. She knows the American League MVP from 1955. She knows the height of the green monster at Fenway. Uh, some players ERA, life, lifetime ERA. Um, she got, has all these things and and um, Woody is like, well, I, she's like, if I if it's in this book, I know it. And Woody is like, I bet I can. He, he kind of challenges her and he asks her about the Library of Congress card catalog number. And she rattles off some number, and he's like, that's not even close. And she's like, well, look even closer, and she smashes his nose in the book. Um, and it just, 
it, it was a good little gag, and you you rarely see Carla abusing Woody, sort of like with like Coach and everything, and, and Woody. She would rarely go that far. Um, occasionally, she'll she'll point out him being dumb, but she tre- she she's more protective of Woody, and we'll see that going forward. But I think this was a an op- this was a, a situation where. Carla has so little. That's why she can get away with being as physically and verbally abusive to the clientele as she can. Because Carla has so little in her life. If you take away something she has, like her mastery of the sports trivia, she's going to she's going to show hands. She's going to get violent. <laughs> when when they did the thing with the Library of Congress number and then she <laughs> rattled it off. My first thought was, it's kind of you know that's kind of dopey. She's she's not going to remember that because I'm thinking that they actually have her knowing it. And then then when it turns out she closes the book on his face, uh, it, it it really it was like okay, <laughs> you know that now it makes sense and now it's funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, getting into the the episode and everything. So it starts, uh, Diane is on her break, and Carla is teasing her about reading a, a book on human sexuality, and Carla, Diane is trying to come up with a theme for her paper, and she, what she says, she's like, I could run, a, I could do a, turn out like a run-of-the-mill essay on sadomasochism, bestiality, bondage, and discipline, but I'm really looking for something with a little pizzazz. <laughs> <laughs> And I love the fact, I love the fact that Carla is trying to get Diane back to work. And when Sam comes in, she's like, "Hey, will you light a fire under her and like get her back to work?" And once Sam figures out what her problem is, that she's like taking a class thinking about human sexuality, that he's like, "Oh, I'll, I'll help you work on this. Here, let's go back in the office." Like leaving Carla without Diane again. <laughs> like I was like, "Oh, Car- Sam, there's sometimes when you really do need a bar manager like Rebecca to help you out." Yeah, no, Sam, Sam is. This, this, it, if nothing else, you know, and again, you know, I think the character is more has more depth than we give him credit for sometimes, or the show even gives him credit for. But Sam, if nothing, is led by his libido. Right. That's that's and you know, and, and ego following closely afterwards. Right. right. Which which really just made him uh, a, a real target for this paper by <laughs> Diane. Right. Right. Um, and speaking of that, we, we we learn more about that in their scene in the office. What did you think of that scene when they're together, when she starts kind of grilling him and asking him the questions about his parents and their affection and his first sexual experiences and stuff like that? Oh, I, I like the fact that he immediately went to, well, "What are you asking me this for? Let's get into you know, let's get into me." <laughs> yeah. Like he doesn't want to talk about his parents, and then then. Uh... He had to be crossed. He, he knew he had to get the crossing guard to get, let him get to the place of his first conquest. Yeah, what was the second one? Well, that was the crossing guard. Exactly. Yeah, she's like, what was your first sexual experience? He's like, I don't remember, but I know I had to. I couldn't get to her house until the crossing guard walked me over. She's like, what about the second one? He's like, well, that was the crossing guard. Like, so, you know, apparently one, as soon as he started, that kept going. Yeah, exactly. I forgot to mention when we were talking about Woody, I, hit, I just want to leave it out, uh, or I don't want to leave it out, rather, but uh, when... He studies the sports trivia, and he becomes so it becomes so ingrained in him that he can't stop giving out trivia points. Well, first of all, all the most of the trivia he gives is false; uh, it's made up just for the purposes of the show. Right. But but to me, it was reminiscent, and I don't know how big of a, show, a fan of the show you are, uh, but it, to me, it was reminiscent of the Honeymooners when Ralph was on the sixty-four thousand dollar question and he got the answer wrong. And then they're trying to get him off the stage, and everything they say to get him off the stage, he relates to a song. <laughs> you know, 
Good night, Mr. Kramer. Good night. There were two songs, Good Night. You know, he just starts <laughs> going on and on. Uh, so, so that kind of reminded me of, of Woody at the end when, you know, they just, they're just trying to just end the whole thing and he just keeps spouting off trivia based on everything that they say. Yeah, they, they really played up like he's like almost like a malfunctioning robot that every, every word they say is a, a cue for some like thing. Like, like his, his brain is nothing but facts. Now he actually makes the point. He's like, I must, I must be done studying. My hair hurts. <laughs> like, something like that. <laughs> I've always, I've always kind of said, you know, that that there's only room for so much knowledge in your brain. This is my my theory of life. There's only room in your brain for so much information. So as you get older and you're trying to store your new experiences, something has to get sacrificed at some point to make room for it. That's what, in in my mind, that's why your past gets com- gets compressed so much because little by little, there's little details that kind of fade as you get older. Because your brain is only going to be capable of holding so much information. So now, you know, your childhood, a lot of the individual experiences are gone. So now it's compressed and it went by, you know, in a, in a heartbeat. It's, it's, it's probably total blithering stupidity, <laughs> but it's always been a theory that I've had. I like it. So now in this case, Woody had to remove the part of his brain that had all the other information to make room for the sports trivia. Like what to, how to respond when somebody says, okay, that's enough. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's a good cue Woody. for something for for right. a horse. It wasn't. They 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 he said they said that's good Woody, and he make it's again it's a made up piece of trivia. He's oh that's Fernando Goodwoody, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Whatever I don't, I don't even remember what the fact what the uh, trivia came up with, but it was something totally made up with the with Goodwoody in it. Right. Back in the office, I. I found it just kind of interesting that like Sam instantly gets a little bit uncomfortable when she's asking him about um, about his parents and about like these other things. Like, well, you volunteered. Like, what what did you expect? What were you thinking? Like that this was going to be about and everything like that. And I'm trying to like you know put this in the context of the fact that you know they did date. I mean, did they ever ask these types of questions about each other's families and things like that? And also. Sam has been in therapy before when he was recovering and Frazier was treating him for alcoholism. So, I don't know. I found, like, his his sort of defensiveness with Diane, like, when she asked him about his parents, seemed, I don't know, maybe that struck me as more the type of thing that Sam would have done in season one before they were well, dating. Well, see, I, I thought his defensiveness on that, I took it as more ego-driven, that you know, I don't want this to be about my parents or anything like that. I want mm. this to be about what a what a stud I am. Mm. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I I didn't see it quite so much as defensiveness as, uh, you know, just wanting to get to 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 brag. That I mean, well, yeah, that that definitely makes sense because the next thing that comes up is when he see when he's looking over her shoulder and he sees that she's referring to him as Trevor, he gets upset about that. He's yeah. he's like, "Why are you calling this guy Trevor?" And she's like, well, "Nobody uses the real names in a case study. It's it's all done anonymously." And he's he balks at that. He's a, he's like, "Wait, you mean I do all the work and this Trevor guy gets the credit?" And she's like, "Sam, this isn't your resume." <laughs> But it is in his for mind. Him, it for is. him, it is. Yeah, and, and then, then he ends up volunteering to meet the class, you know, because he, he's going to teach them all how to <laughs> how to be a stud like him. He's going to, you know, be able to brag about it. Right. I think he's like, shouldn't I at least get to choose my own name? How about Duke? <laughs> just like that. <laughs> and we also find out just very briefly that Diane lost her virginity at the age of nineteen to a military cadet, or she says he was in uniform, but he was going off to basic training. 
um, and apparently got a really bad haircut, and that was the end of their dalliance. Yeah. I was a little surprised that they went there, only because I, I would I would have thought you wanted to make Diane's sexual past a little bit more mysterious. I almost felt, you know, before you got that, that she might have been somebody who kept her virginity longer than that. Mm-hmm. That 19 might have been a little young for the very stiff Diane Chambers. I mean, but I don't, you know, yeah. I, it, it didn't, it did, you know, it doesn't damage her at all. It just, in the, in the backstory I've written in my head, which I've never written, right. but, uh, you know, in, in the backstory I've created in my head for her, she was, you know, very scholarly and nerdy throughout those years and it wouldn't have been probably you know closer to the end of traditional college years before she would have found somebody who matched up to her mental desires yeah well i mean she was dating her her professor as a grad student so how old would you, like- how old do you think she was supposed to be at that point when the season when the show first opened in season 1 I mean, when we meet her i i'm thinking 29 30 no. Younger? No, er, early 20s. Early 20s? Okay. I think so, yeah. I mean, I Because by the time she leaves the show, I'm seeing, in my mind, she's in her mid-30s. Uh, I, 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 don't, I, I would say maybe 25 when it starts, so that maybe she was 30 by the time she left. But I don't know. I, I, I pegged her as being... Uh, has gone through four years of college and, and being a grad student for, for a couple of years, so I would have thought 23 to 25 in season one is what I've always thought. Okay, because Shelley Long, just to, to kind of take this a step further, she was born in 1949, so she would have been about 35 when the, sh- the show went on in, what, 83? 82 was the... 82, so she would have been like 33 then when the show went on. Yeah, I I, I picked her as being a good... Almost a, almost a decade younger than Sam, I think. I don't know. I don't know if they'll ever anything would ever confirm or refute that. I just I got the. Impression. Oh, I don't think they ever did. I don't think they ever gave you any uh, basis for you know aging her character or you know to to have a specific age for her. Yeah. But just just like I said, I, I kind of pictured her you know late twenties when the show went on and you know mid thirties by the time she left. Yeah, I got her like five years younger than that, but. Anyway, then um, after after she writes the first draft of her paper, we meet her her newest professor, Dr. Lowell Greenspun, who's played by Kenneth Tigar or Tiger Tigar, I think. This is he's his, a that guy. Yeah, he's another one of that guy. In fact, this is his second appearance on Cheers. Um, formerly, he was in season one. He was one of the two gay men in the episode "The Boys in the Bar" who kisses Norm on the cheek at the very end. But I'm sure, as I as I mentioned when we covered that episode, uh, you would recognize him from a number of things. But certainly, do you remember him in the movie The Avengers? Oh yeah, he was the one who wouldn't bow before the uh, before Loki. Yep, he's the old German man who says there are always men like you. Yep, um, and he's got hundreds of other TV and movie credits besides that too. Yeah. He's like I said, he's definitely a that guy. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, and he, yeah, he's great, and he he wants Diane to find a woman who succumbs to Sam's charms, and he's like, "How could how could this woman be so gullible?" And I love Diane's response, like, "I don't know." <laughs> She's like, "I'd really rather not go down that rabbit hole." <laughs> so I'd really not expose my, myself and my own weaknesses to everybody in the class and the New England Journal of Medicine. 
Yeah, I kind of anticipated at some point that, like, when Sam met the class, that he would oust out her mm-hmm. as, as a former lover of his own, and that she would have to deal with that embarrassment. And I was a little surprised that they didn't go that route. But I think the fact that they didn't, you know, I, I like when they take your expectations and they say, "Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. That's too obvious." Right. Um, another <laughs> this is sort of re- repeating theme from that episode, The Boys in the Bar, besides the guest actor. Um, par- part of the climax of this hinges on Sam is supposed to read something that could save him a lot of embarrassments, and he doesn't. He chooses not to read it. Um, in the earlier case, he didn't read his friend's book in which he came out and revealed his homosexuality. This time, Diane wants him to read her paper and realize that she's not favoring him and complimenting him in this, and that the class isn't coming to get tips on how to seduce women, um, but rather like scrutinizing him for being this lonely, kind of pathetic, sad creature. Um, and he just doesn't see that. Like when the professor is even like, "My God, you, like this is unbelievable." He's like, "Yeah, right." Like he doesn't get it. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> well, he, 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 I mean, he does make the attempt to read it. He starts reading the, you know, the opening of it and realizes it's like so, so far beyond his reading comprehension already mm-hmm. that he just can't be bothered with it. Yeah, he, it's one of my, the runners up for my, uh, for my home runs when he just throws the paper down. He's like, I can't believe she actually did it. She even made my sex life boring. And Carla jumps <laughs> in on that. She's like, yeah, not for the first time. Yeah, that, that that was that was on the list of possibilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were two other guest car- guest actors. Um, one of them amongst the classmates that Sam talks to. One of them is this guy named Barry, um, who is played by Stephen Miner, and this is his only credit on IMDb. Um, but yeah, he talks about how when he meets a, a woman, he likes to, you know talk and show respect and figure out what she likes and like do play all these things and Sam just laughs at him he's like who can tell Barry who can tell me where Barry went off the bean or something like that yeah and I, and I love that that's that's like where Sam is really kind of acting like an instructor yeah you know this this is how you do it <laughs> <laughs> like, all right let me show you where you went wrong in showing deference and respect to the yeah um, then the other uh, the other guest character is the reporter who comes in, uh, played by Rath Morrow, who again one of these guys who's got tons of credits, like never like a, a big name thing, but he's often playing like crooks or like homeless bums or vagrants or things like that, just kind of in lots of sitcoms and lots of TV shows. Um, but he comes in to talk to Cliff about the about the squash, um, but he's not interested in the, the the Hawaiian thing. He's more of like interested in the types of people in Boston who claim to see these things. He's like the lunatic fringe. <laughs> and, and, well, you know, in contrast to Sam, you know, Cliff actually understands that he's being put in a bad position and and then doesn't put up with it. You know, he, he he sends the guy packing actually because he doesn't. You know, he wants to be taken seriously. Right, right. So, so that they're you know, in its own way, they're they're creating a little contrast between the subplot and the main plot. And who would think? You know, who would ever expect Cliff to be written as the voice of reason, even you know, while embracing his own insanity? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we get our final little scene when Sam and Diane go back into the office and she reads the portions of the paper to try and like like basically knock him upside the head and say 
like the, yeah, like you're embarrassing yourself in front of the, this class because you, you know I, I wasn't putting you on that pedestal. I wasn't idolizing you in this paper. This is a very clinical and nuanced like study that reveals a lot of ugliness about this character that that she used to love that she was in love with and possibly still is. What do you think about that scene? I like the dialogue between them. I like that Sam basically seems, in my mind at least, seems to come to an understanding as to how she's viewing him and turns the tables on her by showing her that she's just as shallow in her relationship with him as he is with her. Mm-hmm. So he he, he kind of knocks her off her pedestal a little bit after he's been knocked off his own. And I kind of, you know, I, I, like, I like when Sam... It's weird because I like when he's being shown as as kind of dopey, like you know that he's he's reveling in the, the what he views as as the compliments to his sexual prowess, and we all know that that's not exactly not what's not going on. But then I like when he shows that he has a little bit more, you know, going on in his mind than that, and then you know he's like, yeah, come here and sit on my lap for a little while, yeah, exactly. so we so we could test it, and and you know he he shows her that that. She's the same as him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for for the deficits in Sam's, you know, uh, academic intelligence and in his formal education, we have always said that he is a good, astute read of character, and he's constantly able to to point out and and seize on the hypocrisy of the characters like Diane and Fraser and and them, um, and eventually and, Rebecca as and well, and eventually Rebecca, yeah. Um, and and he definitely seizes on it here because um, I, I do like it like at first when she's when she's reading this and he's like, is that how you really think about it? And he's just he's very quiet and very insular. And I think instead of getting mad at her, instead of getting defensive, the fact that he seems to close himself off at first makes her uncomfortable and makes her like oh, go out of her way to defend herself. Um, and, and almost be apologetic that she thinks mm-hmm. maybe she hurt him more than she thought. And then he turns the tables on it. Yep. And then, and then I love it just when she says, she's like, oh, yeah, we can just talk about the weather. She's like, it's cold. He's like, well, we're in Boston in December. He's like, <laughs> it's like, imagine if we were in Tahiti. And they start thinking about that. And it's like, all right, what else can we talk about? And they're like, oh, talk about music. They're like, we, do, we don't like the same kind of music. Well, let's talk about different kinds of music. And before that, they start using the different types of musical instruments as, you know, like symbols and, and as metaphors for their feelings. And like the g- sweet guitar licks and the, the moan of a cello. And he's like, the drums <laughs> banging, banging, banging as they're like almost moving in time with her on his lap. And oh, it's the, God, the chemistry of these two. And, and even at this point in their relationship, what that I call the detente where they're not supposed to be together when you just see how easily they are that these two who know they shouldn't be together can just fall right back into this trap what this show did that i think breaks the mold a little bit is i think it's traditional traditional uh, theory that when you let them consummate a relationship when you let the two main characters consummate the relationship you eliminate the sexual tension and then have the show jump the shark in in this instance they had them get together, break up, get together, break up, and it never killed the chemistry. Right. So I think that this show broke the mold a little bit in that respect because I think the you know the the favorite example everybody has is Moonlighting. Mm-hmm. That the show was so popular when there was sexual tension between uh, you know 
what's uh, David Bruce Adams. Willis and, and yeah. David. I couldn't remember his, his character name. David and Maddie had that sexual tension going. And then when they finally had the episode that they slept together, the show just kind of lost its steam. Right. And and I think that's that's the one that's been used as the example. But, you know, you, ha- you have plenty of examples in yeah. classic sitcoms like, uh, you know, I Dream of Jeannie, that they eventually got married and then the show just kind of ended. Well, uh, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I would even say in this show, in Cheers, after Sam and Rebecca sleep together at the end of season eight, I don't think Rebecca's character ever really recovers in the last two seasons. I don't think they really know what to do with her for a lot of the last two years. That's not unfair. Uh, but I think by the time they did that, it was so much of an ensemble. Right, right. Yeah, it wasn't hinging focus more on other characters. On yeah. I yeah. think they, they, they made her a little bit more fringy right. for a while because they didn't know what to do with her. Uh, you know, you still had Sam front and center, but I don't think you ruined his character at all. Right. You know, he stayed consistent. But then, you know, they, they, did, they did some things with her that uh, – I, I found it particularly amusing when she was going to marry Robin Colcord, but she thought he lost his money. Yeah. And then, then she, you know, she has the revelation that, that, oh, I didn't love you. I just loved your money. And then, then it turns out he still has the money, but it's too late. For, uh, that whole saga is uh, oh, so good. So good. Uh, a little bit of uh, Cliffy's trivia. It's a little-known fact. The title for this episode comes from Don Juan in Hell, which is a play within the play Man and Superman, written by George Bernard Shaw. And the play Man and Superman is also referenced again in Season 8. It's when um, Rebecca gets a desk sent to her by Robin, which is called the Ring Desk or something, and she thinks he's put an engagement ring in there. But it's actually, there's a stain on the desk in the shape of a ring, um, and, like, Sam actually reads this piece of paper, and it says, like, you know, because the, the, the desk is valued so highly. It's like, um, this is where Shaw put his uh, ink pen down after finishing the, the last page of uh, his manuscript for Man and Superman. And Sam kind of looks off, he's like, I wonder if that was the one where he fought the mole people. <laughs> I always love that little bit. So. And don't don't you you know as comic fans don't we all want Man and Superman to have some sort of connection to 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 our to our, to our Superman? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I've done that before. Like where I was I was a substitute teacher for a class and like for a social studies class, and I just had to play. It was one of the, I was one of those subs who just went in and pressed play on the VCR. Um, and they were the class was watching a documentary movie, waiting for Superman. And I told them at the fir- at the beginning of class, I was like, "All right, this is what you're going to be watching, waiting for Superman." I haven't seen this, but I'm pretty sure this is the one where he fights Titano, the super ape with kryptonite vision. And like, you know, half the class laughed and they got it. So, so. that's that's a reflection on today's times that even half the class would get it. Yeah. Back back in the day, I don't think, I don't think they knew only who the Titano was. Would've. I think it was more just the fact that I was <laughs> I was making a a comic super geek reference or something. I wish I had subs like you, my friend. Yeah, you would have loved me. So, <laughs> um, for Norm's tab, Norm actually he he made some some uh, he had some drinks this one. I gave him credit for five beers this episode, uh, which brings him up to three hundred and twenty-five for the series. Um, for the employee of the week, uh, I mean, this was such a Sam and Diane heavy one. I, I could have given it to either one. I ended up giving it to Sam. What did you think? Yeah, I, I had to give it to Sam. I thought, you know, just just the way he played the whole ego versus kind of acknowledgement thing. <laughs> I, I thought he, you know, I, th- I thought he carried the episode in his own way. Like again, he wasn't 
he really wasn't given the funniest lines. He had a few funny ones, uh, but I, I, I thought the subplots handled that. But I don't think anybody stepped up the way he did. So Sam is Sam is the employee for me, also. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he actually he did get my my funniest line in this one, which was it, it, the setup with the, the him can't go to his first sexual encounter until the crossing guard is there. But the the real like the closer is like, what about your sexual your second experience? Like, well, that was the crossing guard. So. Yeah, that that that's definitely worthy of it. My uh, mind for this one was, uh, it makes my life seem so cheap and pathetic. Sam, you're reading things into this, <laughs> like here where it says his life is cheap and pathetic. <laughs> that was good too. I forgot about that one. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there were there were definitely a few you know solid lines in this. Uh, again, like I had said at the beginning, this is one that almost you kind of gloss over if you don't look at it closely. But when you start watching it closely, mm-hmm. you, you start picking up things that you, you miss otherwise. Right. Yeah, and I just, I mean, as a, as a fan, as somebody who loves these characters, and especially someone who has made the life decision to study these characters for the next, you know, seven years or whatever after this, um, I, I find it really interesting when they go out of their way to analyze each other and kind of, like, put each other under the microscope and to see what Diane's clinical view of Sam is and how much it meshes up with what me and other guests have said, something where it may uh, vary or, or be a little bit off the mark or how, how much it's it's similar. Um, but also the what what it reveals about Diane too, and again, and her, her own hypocrisy and how she is always her own worst enemy. She's always the one who, who gets in her own way and shoves her foot in her mouth at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, and and I think that's you know she's she's so much better at seeing other people for what they are than she is for seeing herself. Right, and because I mean the the the, the, the end button on this episode is that she is not going to get her her paper published by the New England. Like that would be a huge credit to have a psychology magazine, a, a journal of record, publish this paper, and she's going to withdraw it just to deny or stifle her own feelings for Sam or, or because she doesn't want to face that truth or something like that, just to pr- sort of protect the the separation that they have for each other at this point. Yeah, well, it, it's, you know, she has her own moment of uh, introspection, I guess, at that mm-hmm. point. But I think, again, as I said, I think that's purely because Sam forces her to see her own hypocrisy. Right, right. All right. Well, that was Don Juan is Hell. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for being my guest on this episode again. Where else can people find you in the podcastosphere if they'd like to hear more from you? All right. Well, thank you again for having me. It's always a pleasure. I always enjoy this. People who uh, are interested in hearing other things that I do, uh, I am on Back to the Bins on the Two True Freaks Network where we do basically random comic reviews, but there's more to it than that. We review... You know, comics and comic-related things, let's put it that way. And that's, uh, you know, over 10 years and running strong still. We, I am uh, the host uh, with, with rotating guest hosts on Is It Yours, where we do movie reviews. And finally, we just wrapped up our index show covering every episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, on, also on the Two True Freaks Network, and we are following that up with uh, what we're going to call Toon Trek, and we're going to do the 1970s Star Trek cartoon. We're going to cover all the episodes of that, and when we conclude that, 
we're going to have to figure out what else we're going to cover because we <laughs> enjoy talking to each other too much to stop. That's uh, you know an ensemble show that that we just have a good time. Nice, very cool, very cool. All right. Well, thanks to all of you out there who listen to Cheerscast and support the show by liking and sharing on Facebook, favoriting and retweeting on Twitter, and leaving a comment on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also support the Fire and Water Podcast Network on Patreon. Special thanks to Ashford Wright from the Right On Podcast Network and Rick from Jeff and Rick Presents and Monday Movie Muckabout, who sponsor this show. For more information on how you can support your favorite show on the Fire and Water Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and until next time, we're closed. Is this really how you feel about me? This is my clinical view of you. As a woman, I might have felt something different than I feel as an academician. Makes my life seem so cheap and pathetic. Sam, you're reading things into this. Like here, where it says his life is cheap and pathetic. (laughs) 